hey, want to personally invite you, if you haven't been with us before at a welcome lunch, I'd love to meet you. We'd love to tell you more about our church, how you can get involved. It's not too late, even if you haven't signed up. So meet us in the cafeteria immediately following the service. And also, if you haven't been baptized, but you've given your life to Christ, it's the first step of obedience most people feel like their life just takes off spiritually once they follow Jesus and that command. So that's next week. And also, please join us for the picnic. It's for everyone. It's one of those great times of just going deeper as a community. I love it. My kids love these picnic and baptism times. So make sure you join us at that as well. Well, we're in this series called The Revelation of Jesus. I hope you enjoyed last week's message as Kendall spoke to us. And our heart's desire is to reveal the person of Jesus, who he is, and what he wants to do. I heard a great story uh, these last two weeks of a young girl who was coming to an age where she was asking some deeper questions, and she was a child, she said. Uh, she was wondering how human beings came to be upon the earth. Well, she had a father who was an atheist and a mother who was a Christian, and so she went to ask them. She went and asked her father, Daddy, how did human beings come to be upon the earth? And he looked at her and he said, Honey, it's quite simple. The answer comes from science. At one time, there were just apes walking upon the earth, ignorant animals, and then they began to evolve into cavemen, into Neanderthals, and now we have human beings, as you see. She was a little confused by this answer. She goes on to her mother and says, Mother, how did human beings come upon the earth? And she said, honey, the answer is quite simple. It's from Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning. He spoke and created the world. On the sixth day, he took the dust of the ground, breathed life into it, and brought forth human beings. She said, mama, I thought so, but why does dad say human beings come from apes? And she said, oh, honey, that's quite simple. His side of the family comes from apes. <laughs> Our side comes from Jesus. <laughs> We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. <laughs> Starting in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you fall and repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you, and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I had an interesting conversation earlier this week, and I asked permission to share it. I was on Instagram, and I was looking at a picture of one of our leaders, and this is an awesome guy. He comes from a beautiful beach community, and so his pictures on Instagram were absolutely stunning. In fact, I was like, I could never get my pictures to look like this. And, but then I saw something else in the Instagram, and I thought, you know, I'm going to need to talk to him about that. So he came, and we already had a scheduled meeting together, and so I brought it up. I said, hey, man, 
First of all, I just want to tell you, I got on your Instagram account, and you are from an amazing place. I mean, that beach community you're from, stunning. I said, second of all, man, you have some amazing athletic exploits. I mean, he has him backflipping off cliffs and these, these crazy things. And I said, <clears throat> you know, that's amazing. Uh, but then I said, hey, I, I, I'd like to, to, to give you some constructive critiquing, if that's okay with you. He's like, absolutely, please tell me. I said, okay, first of all, I, I know that the culture where you're from, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's more beach culture. But I said, man, you got to understand, you're yoked, bro. You, you if, if you don't know what that means, you're under 30, uh, or over 30, it means he's, he's a genetic specimen. He is, uh, he is bowed up. He's built up. I said, bro, you're yoked. And, and um, you know, we live in a sensual culture, and what you don't want is someone falling. He didn't put anything inappropriate, but, you know, I was like, you just got to be careful uh, of showing off that physique you got. And I said, and secondly, uh, these girls could be totally pure, but some of your friends in these pictures, you know, they're in, in, in really small bikinis, and, and, and I just know I, I had to move on really quick because I didn't want to stare at it, and I didn't want to stumble, and as a leader in the body of Christ, you just don't want to have anything that could cause someone to stumble. He was like, man, I, I totally get that. Thank you for saying that. Actually, it's been a long time since I've looked at my Instagram account and looked back at the pictures. I need to go back and scrub it with that perspective, and I'm like, Wow maturity right there but then he said something that blew me away even more he goes hey the way you brought that up was that purposeful because you started by by talking to me about where I was from and how beautiful it was and then you really encouraged me with with my athleticism and, and then you brought in the the, the challenge and, and and how it ended I, I don't feel like a dirtbag you know and, and I said actually it totally was it's exactly what Jesus did in Revelation 2. <laughs> if you look at Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, Jesus is talking to seven churches. And he has this same format on how he brings correction or how he brings rebuke to each one of them. The title of my sermon today is Rebuke, Jesus Style. <laughs> rebuke. Jesus style. And I want to learn from Jesus what he did. I have three goals to let you know from today's message. The first one, which will be in all of our Revelation series, the first and foremost is to reveal Jesus. This book, like few other, demonstrates his glory and his majesty in an unparalleled way, and we want to be caught up in the splendor of who he is. I want you to fall more and more in love, to get these glimpses of him, because I believe when Jesus is lifted up, then he'll draw all men to himself. That when you see him in all of his glory, that you can't help but be drawn into worship. You'll find your heart strangely warmed, and you'll want to spend your life on him. My second objective is this, to look at the corrective critiques he actually gives, to look at the challenges or the rebukes, if you will, that he speaks to the churches so that you might understand the standards to which Jesus is calling his church to because it's still pertinent today. But thirdly, I'm hoping as we study the way he spoke to these churches that we'll learn how to give healthy rebukes and how you'll learn to give and receive them as well. Because if we're going to go into maturity as a church, this has to be a part of our normal Christian life. 
We read from Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. I just want to break down the four components that Jesus places in each of his letters to the churches. The first is this. He says this, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's speaking about his identity. Whenever I am speaking into someone's life, I want them to know me. I want them to know my heart, and that's what Jesus did. He's calling them into understanding just how wonderful he is. The second thing he does is he says, I know. I know. It's like what I said to that leader. Hey, man, I know that beach community you're from, and I know the culture's a little different. You see, sometimes we think, well, you don't understand me when someone comes to speak into your life, but Jesus is saying, I actually understand where you're at. The third component is he actually gives the challenge. He gives the rebuke. To the church in Ephesus, he says this, I hold this against you. And he gives them a challenge. And then number four, and my favorite part, he gives a promise. For those who are victorious, you will receive this inheritance. Jesus was very purposeful when he was speaking into the church's life. Let's begin with point number one, how Jesus revealed himself. In Revelation 2, verse 8, he says this, it's him who is the first and the last. He's talking to the church in Smyrna, and he says, I am the one who's the first and the last who died and came to life again. I intentionally brought the largest Bible I have today to show you this. Jesus, when you open the very first page of Scripture, Jesus is there. It says, let us create man in our own image. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are there, and they say, let us create man in their own image. You know, the interesting thing is when I look at the first page of the Bible, you're not there. It's just Jesus. You know, he is in the beginning. And the crazy thing is we flip to the end and he's there again. He is in the beginning. He is in the end. That's a lot of story about him, folks. That's one big story. And you start thinking about the other world religions. You think Muhammad's life was very short right here. Buddha's life, a very short segment. Jesus is in the beginning and all the way to the very end. He's big enough to hold you in the palm of his hands, and it makes me want to worship, amen? He goes on to the next church, to Pergamum, verse 12 of chapter two. He is the one, it says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now we know that the word of God is a sword. And the amazing thing about it is it has very many different facets. I mean, one thing I love about Jesus is that he is the word, and he gives these most amazing, poetic, sensitive, heartfelt words. I mean, the book of Psalms, it's this wonderful poetry. I don't know if you've read the Song of Solomon before, but talk about romance, folks. So you get this sensitive word and this passionate heart and, and Jesus just being so tender and intimate. And then you get the real double-edged sword. <clears throat> and you know, I don't know if you've ever been someone when, when they're been, been next to someone when they're holding a weapon. You, you feel a little different about them. 
right? I mean, you just feel a little uneasy when someone's walking around, right? With a, you're visiting with us. I won't do this to you. But, um, <laughs> you know, it just makes you feel a little more uncomfortable when someone's pointing at you, <laughs> a sword. And, um, you know, that's, that's, Jesus is both the tender poet and he's also the strong warrior riding forth, bringing judgment upon evil. He's the ultimate renaissance man, folks. A tender poet and a strong warrior. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I, 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 you got to love that about Jesus. He goes on to say, Revelation 2.18. Revelation 2.18, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. I mean, you, you imagine when you're sitting and talking to Jesus and all of a sudden, he's looking at you, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's just cool, you know, I mean. You know, don't you wish parents that, you know, your kids are talking, they talk back to you and you're like, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> He's got fire in his eyes. And then his feet are like burnished bronze. Means he's immovable, unshakable. This is a direct allusion to the book of Daniel, the son of man. It goes on to say this, Revelation 3.1, he's the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in his hand. Isaiah 11.2 is is that reference point, the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, power, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. He is the one who walks with the Holy Spirit, who is moving all over the earth, all at one time, and yet he holds the seven stars, which is these churches. It's a, a reference to Philippians chapter 2 where it talks about us, that we as believers will be like stars shining in a dark world as we hold out the word of life. He is the one who walks with the Spirit, and yet he cares enough to be intimate in holding us in his very hand. It makes me want to worship him. Revelation 3, chapter 7. Him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. He opens what no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I remember when I had some acquaintances with this beautiful vacation home, this massive vacation home in the mountains, and they were gonna let me go, and so they sent me the key. And I got that key, and I was like, my precious. Because it meant that I got to go and experience life as it was created to be in this vacation home. You know, when, when David was on the throne in Israel's history, it was their glory years. It was their golden years. All their foes were at rest with them. The land was flowing with milk and honey. He was a righteous king, and Jesus holds the keys. And it shows us that when he comes and he rules and reigns, everything will be as it should be. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Revelation 3.14, the amen, the faithful and true witness. <clears throat> I had a nightmare happen to me this past week. I was called in for jury duty. 
if there is such a thing as purgatory, it's jury duty. And, um, but you know, I'm thankful for our court system because I hate it when people are cheated. I hate it when people are abused. I hate it when injustices are done and then someone lies about it. And so at that kind of time, you want a faithful and true witness. And amen means so be it. And what I love about righteous judges is they stand and they have their gavel in their hand and people are saying this and one person's saying this, but at the end of the court case, the judge says this is the verdict, slams down the gavel, and what they've said is the definitive word. You know that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. You might have been maligned. You might have been wrongly done in your life, but there is coming a day where Jesus will come with his truth and he'll say, this is the definitive word and your suffering will be over and your injustice will be finished and he will make right all wrongs. I love that about Jesus. These descriptions just make me want to worship him. So then he moves on from these descriptions of himself to addressing the churches. He speaks then specifically to these churches. These churches were in the modern day country of Turkey. My wife and I had been on our School of Transformation outreach years ago, 1999, and we were in a city where there hadn't been a church for 500 years. I told the story extensively several months ago we started seeing through some miracles, some different Muslims come to Christ and the birth of a small church. It was so exciting. But the devil came with a retaliatory attack and as my wife and another one of her friends are out sharing the gospel and praying for the sick, they get picked up by the police, arrested, taken to the police station and interrogated. By God's grace, they were released. But when they came back to us and told us, we knew we had to flee the city. So. In the night, we burn all our contacts that we had and take off on a bus traveling through the night to the city of Izmir. We were there intentionally because we knew that there were a lot of, t uh, of, of tourists there and that we could blend into tourism. So we ended up going on a seven churches of Revelation tour. It was crazy. We went from being the persecuted church to tourists. <laughs> we traveled from city to city hearing about these churches. The interesting thing was that we would just see these ruins and we'd read these challenges that Jesus gave to the churches. Now the very ironic thing is at the end of the trip, my leader gave me a huge challenge. In fact, he gave me a rebuke. He said this to me, he said, you know Robert, I know this was a challenging trip, there weren't believers there, you guys did a good job of sharing with people. But you know, we had these standards in this training school and it was a no dating policy and we were asking people to, to, to not you know, try to, to, to uh, start relationships and you kind of were flirting a lot with this one young woman. She turned out to be my wife. And, um, <laughs> but it was still wrong, I just wanna say it was wrong. And he said, and you were also spending time like trying to match make this couple. They ended up getting married. But it was wrong. <laughs> no, I, I'm actually serious. It was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I was out of line. And, and, he, and, he, and he said, you, you, you shouldn't have been doing that. And, and then 
I went home and met with my pastor, Jimmy. And, I, and the deal was, is after the training school, I was going to be raised up to be the college pastor over this really large college group. And so Jimmy sat me down, and we're talking about the trip, and I'm explaining it. And then he says to me, hey, you know, because of, of what you were doing, I, I need you to know that wasn't okay. That wasn't cool. And, and we're going to push pause on promoting you to be the college pastor. And I was like, oh, bummer, man. I mean, in my heart, I'm like, dude, that was hard. Like, we were in a city where there was like, it was, it was challenging. And like, and we saw something happen, man. And I, you know, like romance just makes life a little softer. And, you know, like, that just helps you out. And here's the deal. This is what I find, church. It's a lot of times the reason we, we fall short of God's standards, the reason we, we even walk into sin is to, to, to make it in our hardship, right? Like, hey, my life is hard. And so that's why I, I, I'm kind of abusing alcohol. Or that, well, that's why I've gotten into drugs. Hey, hey, I felt lonely my whole life. That's why I'm hooked up with this girl or this guy and, and we're living together outside of marriage. We make those excuses. And the interesting thing is Jesus is saying, hey, I, I know what's going on in your life. He says in verse 11 of chapter 2 to Smyrna, hey, I know that some of you are being put into prison. He says to the church in Pergamum, hey, I know that you're in the city where Antipas, my, my faithful witness, was actually put to death. I, I, I want you to know today, because sometimes we look at people and we think, you know, I couldn't be like them because actually my life's a little challenging. And, and, and because finances are a little tighter, that's why I cheat on my taxes. You know, if life was just better, then I, I wouldn't do that. So I justify my sin. Amen. <laughs> Me too. And, and, and so we, we, we do that. But the question is, are we receiving the rebuke from the Lord. Listen to what Revelation 3.19 says. It's actually the perfect summary of this whole two chapters, this whole section of the letters to the churches. Revelation 3.19 says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You know, some of us are like, don't, just don't rebuke me. Don't speak into my life. And, and we're afraid for God to rebuke us. But what we see in the scripture is it's a mark of sonship. It's a mark of daughterhood. Those who he loves, he rebukes. You know, I actually don't walk around rebuking other people's kids. This past weekend, we had Pastor Joe Ewan from Scotland staying at our house. He, if you had the chance to be with us in an encounter service, it was a wonderful time. He was also speaking in our training schools. He was coming into the house, and, and, and so I talked to my children and said, we want to honor Uncle Joe when he comes. He's, you know, a, 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 a pastor, he's older, he's an older statesman. We want him to feel loved when he's here. So children, when he comes into the room, I want you to stand up. I want you to walk over to him. I want you to say, hi, Uncle Joe. I want you to give him a hug. I want you to ask him how he's doing and be interested in his life. That's how we show people love. I didn't know that my wife had also said the exact same thing to him, to them. So it's uh, Friday morning. We're gathered around the table. We're having our little family devotional with my, my wife and the kids. And Uncle Joe walks in the room. It's the first time they've seen him. And what do they do? They look up at him and go, hi. <laughs> so I look at the child who actually 
I've coached the most on this. And I looked and I went, get up. Like that. <laughs> and they looked at me and went. So I lovingly looked at that child and said, hey, you need to go to my room right now. And I walked back, and this is what I said. I said, you are a very gracious child. And you are called to impact the earth. And as Herbers, our goal when people come into our house is for them to feel honored and then to feel loved. And that happens when we stand up in their presence and we look them in the eyes and we hug them and we ask questions. Not when we look away and barely notice their presence. That's not okay. And so I gave that rebuke. Why did I give that? I gave that because I want my children to succeed. I know who gets hired in this job market. And it's not people that when the boss walks in, they go, huh. It's people who stand up out of honor. It's people who walk confidently forward, look at them in the eyes, and introduce themselves and ask engaging questions. I want my children to succeed in life. And therefore, I'm willing to rebuke them when things they are doing will hurt themselves or hurt others. My child walked back in the room, gave Uncle Joe a big hug, and asked him how he was doing. That's why he rebukes you. That's why Jesus rebukes you. That's why we need rebuke even in the church. Let me, let me, let me just show you some of the things that he rebukes the church for. First of all, Revelation 2. 14 says this, Revelation 2, 14. He says to the church in Pergamum, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Now, I, I don't want Jesus to have to have something against me, folks. I don't know about you. I don't want him to have to say that. He says, I have this against you. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. You know, in the church in America is a lot of sexual immorality. There's a, a, a lot of inappropriate, and what is sexual immorality? It is sexual activity with someone other than your spouse in the outside of the confines of marriage. You're living with someone and, and, and engaging in sexual activity. You're hooking up with someone. You're just kind of engaged in in, in those kind of sexual activities, that is sexual immorality. And here's the deal. It's not that Jesus doesn't love you. He loves you. He loves you, and he wants you. But he says, that's too low for you, my child. I'm calling you up. There's a greater destiny. And so he brings a rebuke to them. If you're in sexual immorality today, cut it out. And Jesus is calling you up. I know it's hard, but he has something better for you. He goes on to say this in Revelation 2.20 to the church in Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating the food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. You know, you're like, well, you know, I don't really think I, I, I deal with eating food sacrificed to idols. You probably don't have an idol, you know, at the entrance of your neighborhood or in your home and, and are grabbing that food. But here's the question. 
are you engaged in other types of spirituality that aren't focused on Jesus? I find that a lot of believers are reading horoscopes. A lot of believers are reading books about witchcraft or other kinds of, of magic. Oh, it seems, you know, not very hurtful, but it is from a source that is not the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that Jesus doesn't want you spiritual. It's he doesn't want you drinking from a dirty pond. And so he's calling us up. So if you're engaged in those kind of activities, cut it out. And rise up, cut it out, and rise up to be the person that he's called you to be. You know, back to my story. I, I was so discouraged when I was rebuked for how my activities, for, for flirting and trying to start a relationship and, then, and trying to match make. I, I was discouraged. I was frustrated. And, and, and knowing that I wasn't going to get to step into being a pastor, that was, that was pretty frustrating. And let me just tell you, when you're rebuked, you always have two choices. You always have two choices. You can choose to get bitter or you can choose to get better. You can choose to get bitter, or you can choose to get better. You know, we can always get bitter. We can always be like, hey, you don't understand my situation. Or, hey, look back at yourself. You got one finger pointing at me. There's three pointing back at you. You know, y'all, we always got those kind of attitudes. Or we can say, thank you for saying that. I'll go and take that and pray about it and see what Jesus is saying to me. He rebukes us because he's calling us up. Look at this, what he says to the church in Laodicea. He says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. This is verse 15. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. Here's the deal. It's not just sexual immorality. It's not just engaging in, in, in spirituality that's not from Jesus, but it's from a darker side. It's also, he says, don't be lukewarm. Like it doesn't work. It's not fitting for you, church, my body. And, and you know, I find that we can easily move into lukewarmness. I, I don't know about you, but I can get so easily distracted. I can get distracted on things and find my heart is focused on them and my heart growing cold to Jesus. Like I can get into different hobbies and just start getting fixated. I remember one time I got fixated on Frisbee golf. I, two things, you know, two, two, two non-sports put together. It's a double non-sport. Frisbee and golf. I got fixated on that. I remember one time, I didn't have a dog. I wanted a dog. I got fixated on puppies. I was fixated on puppies. And just think, if I can just get a puppy, it will fill my heart. Now, there is nothing wrong with Frisbee golf or fuzzy puppies. But when they have the affections of your heart, instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the righteous and true one, whose eyes are blazing like fire, whose feet are burnished broad, who's, who has the double-edged sword, then we need to repent. We need to push it back and say, you know what? Maybe I just need to clear out the clutter a little because I want my heart to be a blazing inferno for the Son of God. 
That's the only fitting way for us to live, brothers and sisters. So he comes and he rebukes them. Why does he rebuke them? Look at Revelation 3, 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. So many times, even this week, I was flying back from Seattle, I used that verse to share with a, a non-believer. I said, I think right now, because I'd gone through the whole gospel, I said, I think right now you feel like Jesus is knocking on your heart. And she was like, yeah, that's true. I, I think that's a fitting way to use this verse, but if you really look at the context, it's in the context of Jesus rebuking a church. And he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. If anyone has ears, let them hear. Behold, I'm standing at the door and knocking. And if anyone hears, they'll open up the door and I'll come in and commune with them. He's, he's actually saying, hey, a rebuke is actually a knock on the door of your heart. I'm knocking on the door of your heart. And the question is, when you're getting a rebuke, is will you say, uh-uh, I'm walled off. No way. I don't receive that. Stay back. Or do you say, oh, that hurts. Okay, but I'll open the door. And so often, you know, we think Jesus is going to come in with his Jackie Chan on. He's going to, ah, ah, and just go after us. But he's not coming in as Jackie Chan. He's coming in as Mr. Rogers. To, <laughs> to love He's not coming in to wrestle, he's coming in to nestle. And, and he wants to come in. And he wants to draw you near because there's two reasons, church, why Jesus gives us rebukes. Number one is because he wants to draw near an intimacy. He wants to give you intimacy. It's him knocking on the door and saying, do you accept me on your terms? Or do you open up the door and say, it's on your terms, Jesus. Is it my terms? Is it Robert's terms? Or am I willing to open up the door and say, yeah, Jesus, that was, oh, that was a little hard for me to stomach, but I, I receive you. And he says, good, then I'm coming in to commune with you. But the second reason is this. You see this phrase over and over again. I want to end with this. You see this phrase over and over again. To him who's victorious, to him who overcomes, to him who holds on to my words, then I will give him. Then I will give him. The first reason he rebukes us is for intimacy. The second he rebukes us is for destiny. For your destiny. Listen to these promises that he proclaims to these churches. In Revelation 2, 7, to him who overcomes, I will let him eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. He's like, those overcomers, I'm pulling them into paradise and I'm gonna give you fruit from this tree that will satisfy you. In Revelation 2, verse 11, it says this, to him who overcomes, they won't be hurt by the second death. I'm gonna tell you, there's tons of believers that are freaked out by the book of Revelation because they think some scary things are gonna happen to them and the whole book is Jesus saying, I'm good and church, I am going to protect you. I love you, and I have good things in store for those who draw near to me. Revelation 2.17. For those who overcome, I will give some hidden manna. You know, I like food. 
But then when it's like hidden secret food that Jesus just has for me, I think that's really cool. And he goes on to say that he's going to give us a name that only we and he knows. I mean, he has taken us to those deep, intimate places, Revelation 2.26, so it gets even better than this. I will give authority, listen to this, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Whoa! Some of you were not even the secretary in the Boy Scout group you belong to. Some of you never even got to be the line leader in kindergarten. You're like, I've never led anything, and Jesus is saying, you overcome, you're going to lead nations. Wow. That's cool. But you think, that's the top? No. Revelation 3.29. 3.21, excuse me. To the one who's victorious... I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Do you know you're destined for a throne? And you think, well, that's just an illusion. He goes on to say, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. I mean, the end game is Jesus. And you're not going to be God. You're not going to be a God. But you little you... You walk with Jesus, you overcome, you're victorious, you followed him, and he goes, hey, little buddy, I'm pulling you up right next to me on this throne over the whole universe. Wow. Like, that's a lot bigger than the lunch you're about to eat <laughs> after this service. I mean, that puts everything to shame. What? is a greater honor than sitting on the throne next to the King of kings and Lord of lords. The reason Jesus rebukes us is because he's calling us up into our destiny and saying, don't meddle in those lowly affairs because you have such a higher calling and destiny and it's to rule nations and sit on the throne with the King of kings because you are my joint heirs, my beloved children. Woo! And that just makes me want to worship. And that just makes me want to say, Jesus, you are amazing. And if you got a rebuke or a correction from me, and the end goal is that, bring it on. Amen? Here's what I know. Today, Jesus is standing and knocking on the door of different hearts. And he's bringing some constructive challenges. Because he wants to be more intimate with you. He wants you to leave your baggage so you can have open arms to wrap him up. And he wants you to drop your baggage so you can be called higher. And the question is, will you let him speak to you? Why don't we stand up?